Hi everyone, it's Dina McKay and I'm back with a brand new episode of Black Tech Unplugged, the podcast that allows Blacks in tech to share their authentic stories with you, the listener. On each episode, the guest talks about how they got into tech, their work in the industry, and lessons they've learned during their journey. You can find full show notes for this episode on blacktechunplugged.com. Before I introduce episode 33's guest, I have to announce that the Black Tech Unplugged live episode in South by Southwest is now fully scheduled. So mark your calendars for March 13th at 3.30 and meet me at the Hilton Austin downtown. You won't want to miss the panel, which is titled Diversity and Inclusion, Buzzword, Movement, or BS. Now moving on, on this episode of Black Tech Unplugged, I have Yasmin Abdel-Majid. She's a Sudanese-born author, broadcaster, social advocate, and digital influencer with a background in mechanical engineering, and overall, she's a badass. While Yasmin is no longer in tech, her story is one you have to hear. In this episode, I start off by mentioning that Yasmin and I met via Twitter. And we met because I saw a series of her tweets about being in tech that grabbed my attention. So before we jump into the interview, I want to start off this episode by reading you her tweets. So in this thread, Yasmin started off talking about Amy Webb's book, The Big Nine, which discussed biases in the trouble of AI. But... Yasmin also delved into her own personal experience in tech. And the tweets that caught my attention was when she said, and quote, folks who keep banging on about getting more diversity in STEM without thinking about how psychologically damaging it is for us to be in those spaces. Don't at me. I was in it for over a decade. And the thing is, I love STEM. Always have, always will. Trust white supremacy and the patriarchy to ruin a good thing. Oof. I know that's a lot to uncover in some tweets, but that is why I had to have Yasmin on this episode to discuss these topics. So we cover what did she mean when she said she loves STEM but wasn't in the field anymore? Why did she leave? And could we possibly get her back into tech? All of these questions will be answered on this episode, episode 33, Yasmin Abdul-Majid Unplugged. So let's get it. I have Yasmin Abdel Majid on this episode. Hi, Yasmin. Hi, Dina. How are you? I'm doing well, and I'm very excited to have you on this episode. Thank you for having me. The best way to start our conversation is to start with how we met. And of course, we met in the typical millennial fashion of Twitter. <laughs> yeah. I saw something that you tweeted and Definitely. I was following you before, but I saw something that you tweeted that definitely caught my eye in regards to tech. And a lot of people don't fully know your engineering story. So I wanted to touch on that today. Yeah, I think it is funny. Um, I, I took the title engineer off my sort of like byline only this year, so only the beginning of 2019, even though I haven't sort of been in the field since about 2016 but I've always like I think once you're an engineer you're always an engineer um so I I studied mechanical engineering at university uh my passion was always um motorsport and cars and formula one and all I wanted to do was work in formula one um so I ran my university's race car team um I designed the chassis for the car and then Actually, I got accepted into an exclusive master's in motorsport program in the UK. Um, but in order for me to be able to do that program, I needed to save up money to, because I couldn't get a scholarship for it. And so 
I decided to take some sort of engineering job that I could do for a year and then um, yeah, and then go back and do um, the master's. Turns out I got a job in oil and gas. So I got a job as what's called a measurement while drilling specialist, which is like a very niche term for someone who's in charge of a set of tools that you use when you're drilling in oil and gas. And I did that for a year and I saved up the money that I needed. But I actually weirdly really enjoyed it. I enjoyed like a lot of the things that um, that I loved about engineering or that attracted me to the field of STEM. And I was always a kid that was interested in STEM. I, you know, I did technology and design at school. I did graphics at school. Um, I didn't do arts or history or anything or, or even English literature or anything like that. All of my interests were sort of science and math based. Um, but what I really enjoyed about it was the fact that every day was different. The fact that we were solving problems constantly, you know, there was, there was a lot of adrenaline. It was, it was always a new environment. I was going out to different rigs all the time and so on. And I decided to sort of put my motorsport uh, dream on hold um, and, and continue with oil and gas. And the other, the other thing that I will add was the dream of working in motorsport, in my mind, was quite different to the reality of it, sadly. When I went to the UK to kind of check it out, it, it it was very clear to me that actually if I was to be an engineer in a Formula One team, I would more than likely be sitting in an office in the Midlands of England rather than being, you know, trackside and working with the drivers and working on race strategy. And if I wanted to do that, it would be, you know, another 20 years away. And I was like, you know, what I really want to do is I want to be um, at the coal face, as it were. And I really enjoyed, so I worked in oil and gas for four years. I worked two years on land rigs around Australia and then two years offshore both with large companies. Um, but I think the challenge with this, uh, with it, and, and this is actually what I started talking about in the Twitter thread, was that, you know, once the, the novelty of you know, the environment that you're working in fades away, what you're faced with is this really harsh reality that life for you is very different to life for everybody else in the field. So I was a young, black, Muslim, female drilling engineer. You know, nobody assumed that I could do my job. <laughs> like when I walked onto the rig, nobody was like, "Oh, she clearly knows what she's doing." Everyone was like, "How did you get here? Did you like fall onto the helicopter or something?" Like quite genuinely, and and also because you know, working in Australia, it is quite different to working in the US in that there are, there are really no black people working in that field at all, let alone female um, black people or black engineers, and um, it meant that not only was I having to kind of prove myself from the get-go, from the gender perspective, but also having to deal with, like, the confusion and the racism and the homophobia that most people didn't even realise they had. Um, and, it, and it meant that rather than focusing on being an engineer, you had to focus on doing all this other stuff as well at the same time. You had to accept that this was part of what, what the work, what your work life was going to be like. And for a long time, I did accept that. And for a long time, I was like, well, that's just kind of how it is because I didn't know any different because my entire life was in those fields. And then I started talking to female colleagues in other industries and they were like, oh, the way that people treat you and the things that they say to you, that's not normal. That's not a professional environment. You shouldn't accept that. And for a long time, I would say, well, that is normal. That is what I have to accept. I can't possibly report every single person that says a sexist or a racist thing to me that I would never get my work done. But then it began <laughs> to occur to me that there was another way to operate. And, and that 
became really challenging once I began to appreciate that actually my normal wasn't actually everybody else's normal, that it wasn't an uphill battle for every single other person. I was like, do I really want to have to take this on every single time I, I go to work? Maybe, maybe there is a place where I can go and I can work and people won't resent my existence. People will actually think that I have something to, of value to provide. And that was, I think, when I started to um, realize that maybe it, maybe it wasn't worth it. And that is really, really sad, Dina. And that's, I think, the other thing that you, you, you talked or that you noticed in that Twitter thread was like, I still love engineering. I still love STEM. And, and I, there's part of me that wishes that I was back there right now. But at the same time, it is exhausting. And I don't know what to tell young people, especially young black women who are interested in STEM, the latest subjects all the time. Because yes, we need more women in STEM. And yes, we need, need more black women in STEM. But at the same time, I know that there is a sacrifice that every single one of us who goes into these environments has to pay a very personal sacrifice. And, and it's a really tough challenge for people. Yes. So first question that I have regarding your experience in tech is the lack of seeing anyone who is a woman, let alone a black woman, in these environments. Mm. How do you cope knowing that you are basically the only one every day of when you went to the office? Mm. So, I mean, I I was the first female um, technical person they hired in my department in Australia mm. when I for my first job ever. The only other female in mm-hmm. the in the company was um, the secretary. And so I think part of it was that I had never been in an environment at all in my in my sort of like um in any of my technical work where there was another woman. So it was kind of the normal. Um and I couldn't even imagine what it would be like to meet another woman in that field, especially another black woman, especially another Muslim black woman. Um but I think the other way that I did cope, and I don't necessarily recommend this, was that I pretended that I wasn't different. You know, and and I pretended that I was one of the white guys, um, and so I tried to talk like them, and I tried to you know be interested in the same things that they were, and I tried to you know make myself like not different, or I tried to minimize my difference. The reality is though that <laughs> I wasn't a middle aged white guy, so no matter how much I try to pretend that I was a middle aged white guy, you know, nobody else forgot that I was different, and I think. And there was this real tension and it wasn't until about three years in, one of my colleagues said to me, he was like, Yasmin, why do you get so upset whenever somebody mentions the fact that you're a woman? He was like, well, you are a woman, right? And I was like, well, yeah, I can confirm this. He was like, well, why don't you embrace it? Like, surely there's something beneficial about being women, like being a woman. I don't know much about women, he told me. And I was like, yes, that's true. <laughs> but he was like, why don't you lean into it? And it was the first time I remember thinking, oh, who I was, my difference might actually be something of benefit rather than a disadvantage. Um, but the moment that that shift happened for me was the moment it started to get a little bit more difficult because then all of a sudden I wanted my difference to be accepted and embraced and not everybody was ready for that. I don't know if you're familiar with Minda Hart. She has a book out. It's called The Memo. I have no, I've seen it, but I haven't read it yet. So tell me about it. Okay. So in the book, she is talking about how black women are in these work environments. And basically, if you're not doing something similar to what you did, basically we're shunned or we're shamed. 
and how we can cope better in those situations. So it has a scenario for everything. An example, Mm. she always would have Mike, obviously we get microaggressions very Mm -hmm. often that we have to handle. One day she wore a bright nail polish and a gentleman told her, Oh, people like you always love to wear bright colors. And people people like you. Yeah. (laughs) mm -hmm. And it's just like, am I supposed to sit here and take this commentary and think it's okay? So I feel like there's a lot of similarity and a lot of people have probably experienced situations like that. And then, so on your hand where you try to fit in, it doesn't work. But then also what Menda was saying was with the whole concept of lean in and Cheryl Sandberg and how as women of color, leaning in doesn't always work either. No, But it sounds like from your experience, it started off okay because it always starts off like oh okay they embrace it but then as time goes on it doesn't fully work for you yeah and I think the thing is right when you're new um people relate to you differently because you're a novelty and you yourself as an individual as well you're trying to kind of like in any new job you're trying to impress people you're trying to fit in you know you are kind of making yourself as amenable as possible um but the real challenge starts to happen when you are angling for promotion, when you have to tell people what to do, when you're challenging other people's ideas, because all of a sudden the dynamics shift and the power shift. And I, so I found that when I was kind of like at the bottom of the ladder, it wasn't actually that bad. But mm-hmm. the moment I started getting promoted, the moment that I started having to tell other people what to do, the moment that I started, you know, quote unquote, stepping a toe out of line, that's when things really started getting difficult. Because people are happy to sort of like have a woman in their environment as long as they can control, you know, that woman or have the woman on their own terms. But when all of a sudden, and this is, you know, the patriarchy as a whole, all of a sudden, and that woman, especially that black woman, wants to tell you something. You're like, no, 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 this is not how the world works, right? And so that's mm-hmm. when it got really challenging, I think. And that's when I started to see the difference. And, and it became, and I realized, and this was part of the reason that I shifted careers in the way that I did, I was like, oh, it's only going to get more difficult and I'm going to have less and less people willing to back me. Because when I was young and when I was a fresh graduate, there were all sorts of people that were like, yeah, we want diversity. Yeah, we'll back you. Yeah, we'll give you this opportunity. But when it came to, okay, if you're going to hire a black woman, you're going to need to, you're going to expect to have black women problems. People weren't ready for the black women problems, right? They wanted my problems to be like every other employee. No, my problems are going to be different. My problems are not only going to be, you know, so-and-so is difficult to work with. It's going to be so-and-so is difficult to work with because they don't like being given instructions by a black woman, um, by someone who they think is lesser than them. And if you're not willing as, you know, my mentor or as my sponsor or as somebody higher up in the chain, if you're not willing to make, to like call that out, if you're like, mm, you know, that's just how that person is, well, then how can I trust mm-hmm. that these people have my back along the way? Definitely. And to be honest, you can't. Mm-hmm. There's no way that you can ensure that even if it's a situation where you're not in the room and someone's saying something that is false or not conducive to who you are as a person, you can't trust that those people are going to stand up for you. Mm-hmm. They've shown mm-hmm. to your yeah. face who they are they are yeah and and unfortunately that's 
that was the situation that I found myself in. I found myself in a situation where I was kind of being, despite the fact that I was the top ranked, the top ranked drilling graduate in my entire region um, in the globe, um, and that I had like outperformed everybody else that I was working with, and I had done the certification. It usually takes five years. I'd done it in about 18 months. So I was outperforming. But I was also doing community work on the side because, you know, as as women of colour, we tend to also be actively involved in our community. Um, yes. My boss sort of called me in and said, look, the, the challenge you're faced with is that people don't think that you're doing a very good job. They, they see you doing all this stuff outside your com- outside the company. So they think that you're not doing a good job in the company. And I was like, but you know that I'm doing a good job in the company. And his response was, well, you know, it's it's about the perception, and the perception isn't isn't working out for you in this situation. Um, but rather than back me, he was like, well, you just have to manage that perception. And and somebody else more senior in the organization said, well, look, you know, you either have to be Yasmin the individual or Yasmin the engineer. You just can't be both, despite the fact that they were letting other people in the company be both. And so slowly and surely, all the people that I thought within the company would have my back were like, you know what? It's just we don't want to get involved. It's not. It's not. It's not something that I can get involved in. And then you find yourself on your own. And and unfortunately, that is how people talk a lot about getting diversity in STEM, but they're not really. Will, they don't understand how to have diversity in STEM. They don't actually understand that you can't have diversity and simply continue running the way that you've always been running. There's a reason that people don't stay in organizations because it's it's a hostile environment. Mm-hmm. I do want to touch on two points that you just mentioned. First, diversity mm. in STEM. From your perspective, is there a lot of opportunity to have diversity in STEM? Um, I think it's an interesting question. I think that, like, yes, obviously there are pipeline challenges. So, you know, we hear a right. lot about... Um, not enough girls doing engineering and not enough girls even doing maths at school and that kind of thing. And I really appreciate that. I do see companies are trying to hire more women and women of color in and people of color in and so on. So I do see that people are trying to tackle these issues. And to be honest, like there's much more conversation about women in STEM now than there there was when I started. Um, but I, I do think that like, companies don't actually know what they're getting themselves into most of the time and and so I do a bit of work with with corporates on how to lead inclusively and how to change their cultures and so on what it actually requires is people willing to commit to the idea of diversity beyond just a PR thing or beyond a marketing thing right like if you actually genuinely want diversity you're going to have to be ready to change some things within your organization and and I think that's the thing that people don't fully understand like it doesn't just take hiring a bunch of black women and your your problems are going to be fixed no you're actually going to have to set a whole new norm within your organization of how things operate right and that's the bit thing people don't get oh for sure i think you probably have some insight into in the states obviously that is like the buzzword right now diversity and inclusion and diversity mm-hmm. in tech and i feel like from the American side, when people say diversity in tech, they're still focused on, and particularly white women. Mm-hmm. And while the number of people of color and the number of black women in STEM are very, 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 very slowly growing, there's still the emphasis is on white women in tech. And so mm. when we start doing things and we're trying to 
get to the forefront and have them have people understand. No, it's not a pipeline issue. It's still such a hard concept for people to understand. Mm. And so diversity in tech in the States has now become the buzzword for let's get other women in tech mm. as opposed to people of color. Yeah, and I think, and this is this is a challenge in Australia as well. And I remember I did um, I did like a report for a bunch of uh, tech based organizations around diversity, and I started with mm-hmm. yes, gender, but then I said you guys, you realize that diversity is more than gender, and a good eighty percent of the people in the room were like what, and I'm like yes, folks, and and believe it or not, <laughs> yes, there's race and yes, there's gender, but there's also race and gender in one package, you know, <laughs> like. And that's, and the concept of intersectionality is also something that's super foreign to people. The fact that black women will face challenges within, you know, a female based environment because of how racism and white supremacy works. That, that's super difficult for people to, to understand apparently. And you know, the reality is, you know, these are not difficult concepts. It is not mm-hmm. like, 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 like tech, like engineering, a rocket science, aerospace, advanced dynamics. That stuff, yes, is technically difficult. It requires training to do that. What is not difficult, at a pure kind of like intellectual level, is understanding how white supremacy works, how the patriarchy works. But what the difficulty is is for people to get over themselves because they can't they can't get over the fact that they might be complicit in a system that is discriminatory because they think I'm a good person. I couldn't possibly be participating in this system that is, you know, unfair, that is prejudiced. People don't want this real deep fragility. And there's the sense that, oh, I'm a technical person. None of this stuff matters to me. I'm outside the realms of all this social stuff. And I know this because I used to be one of those people. I used to think, nah, feminism doesn't apply to me. You know, like challenging this stuff, it doesn't really apply to me. It wasn't until I got into the workforce and I was like, oh, yeah, I can't actually escape the fact that I'm a black Muslim woman and that's how people are going to treat me. Nothing I can do. I cannot perform, outperform my blackness or my, you know, my womanness or my Islam. Like, it doesn't work that way. Right, And so what you find yourself is in this situation where people, you have to, every single person in a leadership role has to go on their own individual journey to unpack their own stuff so that they can get to the point where they are able to do some of this work. Does that make sense? Yes, it definitely makes sense. And I'm very interested for you to share about the report that you did in Australia. What was your motivation and what results did you get? Yeah, so... I essentially, I, I was commissioned actually by um, somebody who was interested in the space that was like, look, I'm not, he was, he was just like a middle-aged white guy who had a good heart and he was like, look, I don't really know what to do. Can you write a report for me in the Australian context and then we can bring some other tech companies and we can do some programming around it. So I think it was a really great um, exercise because it was supported by someone within industry and he kind of gave me his blessing and his sponsorship and paid for it, which was really important as well. Mm-hmm. What came out of it, I suppose, was um, essentially a group of people who were HR leaders within their organization got a little bit more insight, which I think is really important. But also I tried to push them a little and said, look, these are conversations that you need to be having um, within your organization. These are conversations you also need to be having as individuals and um, and I, this was a couple of years ago at the time, I was kind of coming in from the angle of unconscious bias, 
which yes is problematic, but also is a good entry point. Um, and I was like, all right, work that you need to do individually is to challenge your own biases. How do we go about doing that? Here are some tips and exercises for you as individuals to go through, but then also, you know, you within your organizations. Um, I think I haven't seen the data since I've done that report on the companies in particular, but the challenge in Australia is slightly different to the US in that the political environment hasn't even started to have a conversation about things like race. Like, literally, the government hasn't even admitted that Australia was invaded. Um, so, um, people very strenuously believe there's no such thing as racism in Australia unless it's, you know, um, the most obvious version of it. And so I think, quite sadly, the conversation in Australia is like 30, 40, 50 years behind the conversation in the US with regards to race, which means that we are starting from such a low benchmark and there's mm. so much more educating to, to happen, really. That's interesting. Mm. Um, I can't imagine being somewhere and they think that racism doesn't happen. I see. I mean, like, to be honest, I didn't even realize that it happened until I started educating myself because we didn't talk about it at all. And so I didn't have a name for the things that happened to me until I kind of grew up and started doing my, and, and because they didn't, they didn't teach me in engineering or in any of the technical things that I did. Yeah. So, so it meant that I had to go on my own journey to this, to like unlearn so much of the things that I had learned um, as a young person, because I had thought, okay, if somebody doesn't like punch me in the face because I'm black, um, like that's not the only form of racism that exists, right? Like, and, and that's that's what I had been taught in Australia, the idea that there could be such things as microaggressions or, or structural inequalities, all these things didn't make sense and weren't taught. And also, I think, like, we, we haven't had a civil rights movement in the same way that the U.S. does. And so what tends to happen is people in Australia will be like, well, look, it's not as bad as the U.S. We didn't have slavery in the same way that the U.S. did. So we don't have racism. And it's like, well, actually, you had something called the white Australia policy, which meant that you couldn't migrate to Australia unless you were white until the mid-70s. Like, that's not that long ago. So it was a nation built on the basis of whiteness. And if that isn't the basis of a racist nation, what is, you know? That is so interesting. It's like there's a lot of growth that can happen just based oh. on your experiences alone. A hundred percent, hopefully. And, you know, like, I think I think there are really interesting things happening in, in the U.S. And I do quite a bit of work now in, in the DNI, the diversity and inclusion space in the U.S. And, and I what I think is cool is that there are people like you, Dina, in the U.S. who give each other, like, we, we all give each other strength, right? And so we don't feel so alone when it comes to these conversations. Speaking of giving each other strength, so when you were in tech and you're working, but you see no one who looks like you, how did you find mentors and supporters in the industry? So... I suppose what I tried to do was I tried to find people whose values matched mine, right? And it meant that I had to be a little bit more creative with how I looked for people. So one of my sort of strongest mentors or sponsors in the space um, was 
a senior leader in, in the organization who actually came, um, he, he lived in a different part of the world. He came to Australia to give a speech about how much he cared about diversity and inclusion. And he was this white Dutch guy. And I'm like, looking at him, I'm like, man, you are talking some talk, but can you really back it up? Right, And so I went up to him afterwards and I was like, look, I'm a young drilling engineer. I'm a young female black Muslim drilling engineer. And if you really care about DNI, let's have a chat about it. Because, you know, I've seen lots of men like you talk the talk, but not really walk the walk. Um, so I emailed him. He was like, yeah, go ahead, email me. I emailed him. I'd also done my TED talk by this point. So I sent him my TED talk. And he replied like almost within the day, which was wild because he was really senior. And he was like, this talk was great do you have a mentor in the company? Because I would love to be your mentor. Um, and, and then, and, and that's how the relationship started because he was like, look, I, yes, I talk about diversity and inclusion, but I really care about it. And I want to be able to support people within the organization that are, you know, that, that also care about this stuff. And so, even though we were from completely different parts of the world, completely different demographics, because he genuinely, um, felt like he or he genuinely backed himself and, and, and had these values. I felt like I could trust him. And it took a little bit of time, but ultimately he then he like gave me opportunities and so on and opened doors. Similarly the guy that I was talking about earlier who who commissioned me to do the report was someone mm -hmm. who somebody recommended me to him. And um I'll give you another example. Another there was a guy who was the head of a really big um the drilling department of a really big oil company who found my book, actually, my memoir, and read it um, and emailed me out of the blue. And he was like, hey, look, I'm not your typical person interested in DNI, but I really appreciated what you wrote about in your book. And I would love for you to come to my organization and do like an in-depth um, training session with the heads of drilling from around the world. And so he flew me in, he paid me, you know, the proper rate and so on. And so I think ultimately, like, it's all about, making very clear and when I started finding like mentors at work is when I was unapologetic about who I was and what my goals okay. were. Does that make sense? Because then mm -hmm. you attract the right kind of people towards you. Before that, I was attracting mentors who didn't quite get me. And so I was like constantly having to try to explain to them why I was doing different things, you know, and their values and their priorities were very different to mine. Um, and it just, oh, there was a bit of friction there all the time. But all of a sudden when I was like, hey, this is the kind of person I am. This is what I'm about. All of a sudden, try, like the energy that I put out really um, brought brought to me the people whose energy matched mine. That makes total sense. It's basically moving with intention. So 100%. you know what you, who you are and where you want to go and what you want to do. So when you have that understanding within yourself, you attract those people. So I totally, completely understand. And also, I love that you, in a way, you kind of pinpointed who you knew would be that person. Mm. For instance, meeting the gentleman that gave you the opportunity and pushed you for the report. And I think that's important too. And a lot of people don't realize the importance of also putting yourself out there. Cause what you did, you really put yourself out there because a lot of people won't even approach someone to have a conversation, even though they yeah. know that they have seen their work and they admire what they're doing. And so putting yourself out there really pays off. Oh, totally. And I think, you know, we do live in a world now where your personal brand 
can mm. work for you in a way that like maybe it didn't work 20 years ago or something like that and I know that you know some people find it icky and I know a lot of my female engineering friends find it icky but look that's how I that's how I built a presence and it also was how I could then use my platform in a way to empower others like there are a ton of other young Sudanese you know, um, girls doing engineering now in the town that I grew up in because they saw me doing engineering and I was loud and proud about it. Um, and so you just, you also never know when you put yourself out there, who else you might be inspiring. Exactly. And when you were doing kind of the, you were thinking about diversity in tech and building your brand, were you working in the tech industry at that time? Yeah, so I started, I actually started by blogging. So I used to have this like blog called Crazy Rig Conversations, where I would just like anonymously (laughs) um, write about all the wild things that I would hear on the rigs. Um, And that's actually how I started. That's how I started. I didn't have Instagram. um, I barely used Facebook, but it was a way for me to kind of you know, share my experiences because it was kind of lonely as well, right? Like my friends didn't, my friends on land didn't totally understand what I was doing. The guys that I could, that I was working with, you know, they, there were limits to what we could talk about. Um, But it was, yeah, it was an opportunity for me to share. And so I slowly, and like it's taken years, you know, I started on the rigs in 2012 um, and I blogged, I blogged for about four years before I started even like writing about the stuff more openly. And for a long time, like my first book deal actually came out of my blog where somebody read my blog and was like, can you please write an essay for us for this publication? And I was like, nobody's going to be interested in my essay. And I'd also, I'd never written it in like anything like that before, but I wrote this essay, got published. And then I got approached by some big publishers after that because they saw my essay and they were like, this is really interesting. Your life is really interesting. Would you be able would you be interested in writing a book about it? And I remember being like, no, I don't want to write a book. I'm an engineer. And my mom at the time was like, are you kidding? Take the money, write the book. (laughs) My mom was like, this is such a good opportunity because you don't know who else you'll inspire. And that is ultimately how I started as a writer. So when you were building your brand and you were working in tech, did you get any pushback from your employers or anyone else that you were working with? (laughs) Uh, Dina. Well, yeah. <laughs> Ultimately, that is how I ended up um, sort of leaving my second job and, and ultimately leaving the industry. So that book, when that book was, so when I signed up with, when I started working at um, the second company that I was working at, I told them, look, I'm writing a book. I'm not going to mention the company name. I'm not talking about anything specific to do with the company. It's actually about my previous job. It isn't even about this. Um and they they were like, fine, but, you know, you've got to be really careful, blah, 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 blah. Um, essentially, what ended up happening was like a couple of uh, maybe three or four weeks before the book was going to come out, I mentioned to one of the senior folks, they were like, oh, how are you doing? I'm like, great. You know, I, I passed my certification. Oh, and in a couple of weeks, you know, my book's coming out. And they were like, excuse me? And I'm like, oh, you know, I mentioned it to so-and-so ages ago. And they were like, then all of a sudden, things got bad very quickly. I started, I got called into all sorts of meetings. My bosses started like, losing their minds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then 
within like a week or two, like essentially they started setting, sending really threatening emails being like, you've breached your contract, you've this, that and the other. And I was like, I don't think I have actually, because I'm not talking about the company. I didn't even have the company name on my LinkedIn at the time because I was like, I don't want any, I don't want my world to mix. And I'm working really, really hard with the publishers to make sure nothing can happen. Right. They were like, eventually, I had just been given a double promotion to supervise my own rig offshore, right? I was like really excited, just about to fly off. Two days before I was meant to fly to start this new job, this like massive promotion, they called me into the office and they were like, we're giving you a um, a disciplinary warning. Uh, you have demonstrated a pattern of behavior of non-compliance. Um, and we also we're going to dock your pay. We're going to dock your bonus. We're going to dock your ranking because we can't possibly give someone who has had a disciplinary warning the highest ranking. I'd been given the highest possible ranking, which was like super rare. Or my my boss had recommended that that was the ranking that I'd been given that I should be given. And they were like, well, no, we're not going to give her that ranking because you know she's like a liability. And in fact, later on that year, they leaked to the press that I was a liability to the company. Um, so they went hard trying to discredit me and trying to, so eventually I ended up taking a year leave without pay because I was like, uh, they, they took away my promotion. They were like, you're just going to have to sit in the office for the next year. I was like, doing what? They were like, well, we don't know that like you've, you can't be doing all this stuff. And I was like, but I have done my job incredibly well. You've shown me like my results show that I've done my job really, really well. The stuff that I do outside has no bearing on my ability to be a good engineer. And they're right. like, well, we're sorry. This is just how it goes. Um, and so I, I took a year off and I went and did my book tour. And then at the end of that, that year, um, I decided that, like, you know, that career was going really well. And, and the engineering company was like, look, if you come back, you're going to have to stop doing all of your stuff outside, which essentially just meant that, I would stop being able to support other young people through telling my story. I would never be able to advocate for people from marginalized communities again. I was like, do I want to give all of that up for a company? I didn't feel like it was worth it. And so um, I decided to to not go back. But yeah, look, it was never my choice. Um, I didn't I didn't want to leave engineering. I didn't want to leave tech. I always wanted to do both. Um, but that was kind of how it ended up. And for my listeners who want to grab your book, let's share with them the title for your book and also what it's about. Sure. So my first book is called Yasmin's Story, and it's um, it's about, well, it's my memoir, essentially, and that you can get it on um, Amazon or, or whatever. You can also get it through my website. So that's Yasmin's Story. And hopefully all of my listeners will go and support. I think it's an Yay. awesome book. I have it on audiobooks. <laughs> so, oh, thank um, you. Thank you so much. And awesome. you can also, if if you're not interested in, in books, but you would like to, some more, to support me some other way, I've also recently set up a Patreon. So you can find that pretty easily as well. And tell my listeners what that's for and... Yeah, so a Patreon is kind of like a membership club and because lots of people um, have talked about the value they get out of the work that I do, but also want to get a little bit more sort of like personal or closer connection. And so it's a bit like a membership club. There's like a $2 tier where it gives you access to different posts that I will put up every week or month. Um, and that gives you an idea of kind of what I'm working on, but also um, tips and tricks around different things like how to 
how to write a keynote speech or how to um, work in a male-dominated industry and, and things that I've learned along the way. Um, and then there's there's another tier which is a bit around, you know, if you are interested in something a little bit more regular as a mail-out, I will give all sorts of different bits of feedback, um, give people early access to things that I'm writing, um, things that like, you know, if you want to give feedback on my book covers and that kind of thing. Um, but also a little bit more kind of like tangible stuff, like if you're interested in writing articles or if you're interested in learning how to have a promotions conversation in your workplace, like how do you go about doing that? Um, and those are all the sorts of things that I will provide through through my Patreon. So it's um, Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Yasmin, Y-A-S-S-M-I-N underscore A, or you can find the link on my Instagram or Twitter. Awesome. And so I have a few more questions before we end our conversation. One reoccurring theme is perception. And Mm. this is hard for me because I worked with a woman and she used to always tell me perception is reality. And that Mm. used to just like grind my gear so bad Mm. because Mm. their perception is not my reality. And what I think of myself and I know myself to be is not their perception. So I want to know from you, what do you think about perception in regards to the workplace? And if you do have a bad perception, do you have some tips or advice for how to get into a better light? Yeah, I think there is truth in that statement in some way. I think that um, mm-hmm. perception can make can become one's reality. But I think especially for people out, that it kind of applies more to people within the norm, within the norm group. For them, perception is about reality. But as we know, you can have a great perception and be really terrible to work with. You can have a terrible perception and be a great person to work with, right? And so um, I think there are kind of two elements to this. One is about us as individuals also not holding people account to the perception that we think of them. Right, and that requires our own inner work, but also is to identify whose perception matters, because not everybody's not everybody's perception matters equally. For me in my workplace, the perception of my boss, so how my boss perceives me matters. How the people who make promotions or who choose who gets promoted, their perception of me matters. And then you know, key colleagues, like there will be particular people in your workplace who are the people that like everyone sort of believes or follows or values, right? Like the kind of, you know, like the boss in the playground kind of thing. Um, They're not like the formal boss, but everyone kind of like um, follows their lead. So like find the individual people whose perception matters um, or whose perception matters to you and see how much you can influence that. Um, And then, and also like not everybody is going to like you, but that doesn't have to be the thing that you care about. It might be people that like you, but they know that you're a great operator or people don't like you, but they know that you're really good at managing particular situations. And so, you know, that that is the perception that's important. So I think it's about being, again, we come back to that word of intention, um, being intentional about what you want to get out of the perception or how you want to use people's perceptions um, of you. And then kind of, and then how you make that happen is you find out, okay, the particular people that I want to influence, what matters to them? What forms their perception? Is it a personal relationship? 
situation? Is it a, they only believe other people and so you have to influence the other people first in order for them to change their minds? There are lots of different ways that an individual changes their mind. Um, or do they have to see like physical data and so you can do a project with them where they see physical data of how good you are at your job? Like, I think... Um, it's like a little bit of strategic analysis around, you know, how the person that you want to influence can be influenced and then going about that quite strategically. And that is a great answer. And it kind of leads me to my next question, because when you're in these workspaces, sometimes you just need someone to embrace you, someone mm. to, get to understand who you are, especially in tech and being a person that either you're the only woman, you're the only black person. So for people who are not people of color, so non-people of color, what advice do you mm. have for them to embrace us and help us within the tech industry? Mm, great question. I think, you know, um, people have different feelings about the word ally, but I think it's super helpful to have allies in our organizations. But I think we can, it's also about going about doing allyship with humility, right? I don't need my like white friend to come over and be like, oh my God, I've read every single book and did you know this? And did you know this? And did you know this? Sis, I already know all of this. I don't need you to prove to me how woke you are. That's not what I'm interested in. What you need to do is go away and do the work on your own. You know, if you're, if you're interested in supporting POC in your people of color in your organization or black people in your organization, Go away and do the reading. Educate yourself on the challenges without asking people. Like, don't go ask your black colleague, oh, do you think there is racism in this organization? Because there is, categorically, there will be racism in the organization. There will be sexism in the organization. It is not a question of if there is, but it's how it's operating, right? So assume that everyone um, or that every organization has these elements. But then... I guess be supportive of folks when they tell you about something that's going on. So like um, if somebody says, oh, my God, I can't believe that person did that thing. How racist. Don't say, oh, maybe they didn't mean it. Say, man, that sucks. I'm so sorry. Like just be someone who's listening. Be someone who's there to be like, I hear you. That's awful. Do you want me to do anything about it? Um, be someone who isn't going to need to be convinced about the challenges, but already be on board with, you know, with that experience. And then also look at how you can use your privilege and your platform. So if you're in a position where somebody, uh, where you are in conversations and everyone's white and male, for example, and they're talking about another colleague and you know that colleague is doing good work, but maybe isn't perceived to be doing good work, throw on a good word. You know, use your position, put people forward for um, positions, have people's backs in ways that are real. If you see your black colleague not being heard in a meeting, you know, make sure you turn to them and be like, hey, we haven't heard from so-and-so. What about, what, what do you think? And if they make a suggestion that is something, that is some sort of racialized comment, back them up so they don't feel alone. I think there are lots of small ways that you can make someone feel like you have their back. Um, and and slowly, you know, you'll come into the fold and you'll see more opportunities. And, and it's like, you know, when you buy a white car, you start to see cars everywhere on the street. When you start to understand racism, you'll see it everywhere. You can't unsee it. But then you can use that, you know, superpower perhaps 
um, to make a bit of difference to the people's lives around you. Yeah. Thank you for those tips and advice. That is so helpful. So baby steps, but we would appreciate being a true ally in the industry. And one of my last questions is the future of tech. Where do you see it going? Oh gosh. Well, big, (laughs) you're going to, you're going to land me in on, on the nice small question for last one, aren't you? Um, Look, I think that I think there's a lot of opportunity in tech, um, but I think there is also uh, we run the risk of not catching things before they become a problem. Essentially, like obviously the big thing on the horizon at the moment is like AI and deep learning and machine learning and and things like facial recognition being used in lots of different places, especially in policing and so on. Um, the other obvious big conversation at the moment is around climate change and the way that technology is going to change things or not change things in that space. So there is a lot of change happening and technology is going to play a big role in that. My fear is that technologists will want to do the work of developing technology without thinking about the social implications. And that's why I think now more than ever, we do actually need proper diversity in tech, in tech spaces because if black folk and women and Muslims and people with disabilities and queer folk are not involved in designing these technologies, we are going to bear the brunt of these decisions, right? And we're seeing it today. We're seeing it happen all around us. And, and the folks with the money and the folks with the privilege will be able to protect themselves. Everyone else will not. So, that is the kind of scary bit. But the opportunity is that things have never been, it has never been, I suppose, a more democratic time in a way to get involved in these spaces. You can set up a Twitter account, set up an Instagram account, set up a Patreon, set up a YouTube page. You know, you can really access so much. You can learn how to code online freely. You can volunteer for things in your local area. Like there is time, there is Space, there is platform to do things in a way that it has never really been possible historically before. I mean, I'm having a conversation with you in the US, living here in the UK about my life in Australia, you know, over a phone. Right? It is wild <laughs> what's possible. And so I think as much as I have fear and concern, I also have hope because I know that there's a lot more, there are a lot of people doing a lot of different things and and that's exciting. Um, and so if you're thinking, should I get involved? The answer is probably, yeah, do it because we need you. We need everyone. We need everyone um, involved to make sure that the society we build is a society that's best for us all. Thanks for listening to Black Tech Unplugged. I'm Dina McKay, and you can find the show on Instagram at Black Tech Unplugged, as well as Twitter and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please go subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or however you're listening to this episode. And if you have an extra few minutes, make sure to leave a five-star review too. It would help me out a lot and help other people find the podcast. Until next time.